Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a developmental biologist and geneticist about gene editing techniques and their potential to transform the treatment of diseases like cancer and muscular dystrophy. There's certainly a lot of optimism in the field, but yes, this is the way forward. It's going to work. There will be treatments. That was Robin Lovell-Badge from the Francis Crick Institute in London, talking to the FT's science columnist, Anjana Ahuja. He spoke to her for a special report on health research and development that appeared in the FT earlier this week and which was sponsored by the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations. Before we start, Robin, everybody has become very familiar with the story of the gene-edited babies that came out from China last year. So these were apparently the world's first gene-edited babies created. It really triggered a scandal. Do we know what's happened to the scientist and or to the twin baby girls that have been born? We know nothing new, particularly. Jean-Q Hay, I'll just refer to him as JK, is currently in Shenzhen, where his university is. In fact, I think he's in an apartment owned by the university. And the stories in the Chinese press that there are guards, what we don't know is who those guards are, whether they're university guards, police, whoever they are. We don't know whether he's under house arrest or whether he's free to move around. He actually emailed me and said he's all fine. So the impression is, I think he's trying to give me that he's, he's, he's not under arrest. So the guards may be there to protect him, because I know he was receiving threats during the big conference that we had. So that's all I can say. He's fine. And Do uh, we know about the welfare of the twin girls, Lulu and Nana? That's a big concern. We know nothing about that. JK himself was very keen to stress that their privacy should be maintained and that they should be protected and that identity not known and all of this, likewise their parents. There is an investigation being launched in China by the Ministries of Sciences and Ministry of Health. And they presumably will want to find out whether what he's claimed to have done is actually the case. And so they would need to take DNA samples from the two babies and the parents. But I hope they do it in a sensitive way. These are just two little babies. They should be treated just as that and not subject to anything bad at all. They have novel mutations in this gene, CCR5, which is known in some cases to confer protection. Mutations in that gene can confer protection against HIV, and that was the rationale behind the work that JK did, was to try and make these children immune, if you like, to HIV, because having HIV in China, or even being a member of a family where one of the family members has HIV, as in this case, it's treated very badly. The families are stigmatized, the children wouldn't be allowed to play with other children simply because of that, for example. So they're ostracized. That's another reason why the identity needs to be protected because of that situation too. But what we hope is that they will be treated as two normal little girls and that's it. They have mutations in the gene. They're novel mutations because of the way he did the genome editing quite poorly. We have no idea what those mutations will do. But all of us have mutations Every new generation, there are 40 to 80 new mutations in our genome. So just treat them like normal children. 
keep a watching eye on them, see what happens. So watch this space on the gene-edited babies story. But of course, most scientists involved in genome editing, as you prefer to call it, are not involved in trying to change the course of human evolution by creating these genetic mutations or changes that will then be passed on down the family line. As I understand it, the real excitement for genome editing is in the lab, working with adult patients, perhaps with single gene disorders, also excitement with drug discovery and so on. So let's talk about that because I know that you're involved as a developmental biologist in the R&D side of things. What does your work focus on at the Crick? Involving the genome editing systems. We have a number of projects, in fact, many projects, but let me just say about one of them. Genes have two parts to them. They have the part that encodes the protein. It's going to do its job for it. But it also has a part that controls when and where that gene is active. So not all genes are active in all cells all the time. They are cell type specific, and they can be stage of development specific. They can be only active at a particular time in the embryo or in the adult. We've been using the genome editing methods to try and understand, dissect, if you like, this regulatory region for some genes, and one in particular called SOX9. So SOX9 is a gene that has many roles in developing embryo, but one we've been working on for a long time is its role in sex determination, so whether you become male or female. SOX9 is really critical to give rise to the development of testes, a particular cell type that's critical for making testes. So mutations in SOX9 can lead to sex reversal to give XY female development instead of male development. But it's a really complex gene that's active in many different cells. And it turns out it has an enormous regulatory region, which is really complex. And we wanted to try and dissect that. So you have specific sequences you can refer to as enhancer sequences, where other proteins, transcription factors, interact with those to tell the gene to be active or silent. And so we had found, using a variety of methods, a number of candidate regulatory regions or enhancers for SOX9 in the process of making testes. And we had about 32 different candidates that we started with, and we used a number of methods to try and reduce that number down. We came down to four that looked like they were very promising, and we used the genome editing methods to inactivate each of those enhancers in turn, to basically delete each of those regions of DNA in turn, and found one of them, which is located a very long distance away from the protein coding part of the gene itself, something like 650,000 base pairs away, which is a big distance. When we deleted that particular enhancer, it inactivated the gene, so we got XY females. So even though you have this really complex regulatory region spread over many millions of base pairs, and it's stuffed full of different regulatory regions, turns out that just one was essential for its expression in the early developing gonads so that they could rise to testes. And what's an XY female? They are chromosomally male, so yes, the X and the Y chromosome. Yes, one X chromosome. But, one but they've developed as a female. In this case, in the embryos, they are indistinguishable from normal females. So they have um, female genitalia. They have female genitalia. They develop as they, biologically as women. They have they, ovaries. Well, they're mice, not women. But they develop as females. In humans, of course, yes, you would also have cases where you have XY female development. So they look female, but chromosomes. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. They will be infertile because the germ cells, so the eggs, in an XY female don't do very well. They get lost early on. So they will be infertile. But otherwise they look and generally behave and are females. Is there a comparable intersex condition if in humans? There are also intersex conditions in humans where you can have a mutation in a gene that could be a partial mutation, so you've only lost some of its function. Or it may be a gene that's not at the top of the pathway, if you like, but down a bit, so it doesn't have quite such a critical role, that when mutated can lead to individuals who have a mix of both male and female characteristics. So they can have gonads which are partly ovary, partly testis, for example, or have ovary on one side, testis on another. Externally, they can have a mix of the external genitalia being not quite male, not quite female. One thing I should ask you to do, Robin, is to explain very briefly what CRISPR-Cas9 editing <laughs> is. Can you tell us how the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing system works? Very briefly, please. Okay. It relies on making breaks in the DNA, usually a double-strand break in the DNA. And to do that, you have an enzyme called Cas9, but you have to have a way of getting that enzyme to the right place in the genome. And that's the guide RNA component. So the RNA, you design it. Part of the RNA is designed to be complementary, so to match up with the DNA sequence that you want to cut. The other part of the RNA, the guide RNA, has a sequence that interacts with the Cas9 enzyme, so the protein. So when you have both together... And the, CRISPR is that linking? CRISPR, yeah. So that, CRISPR is a sort of shorthand term for the guide RNA, it's for the RNA. The name CRISPR comes from origin in bacteria. It's actually not really relevant to its use. So the guide RNA takes the Cas9 enzyme to the right part of the genome. The enzyme then cuts the DNA, and processes that occur in all cells to repair broken DNA then jump in and try and repair it. Now, in the simplest form of the technology, you're just making a break in the DNA. You're actually generally making a mutation in a gene. You have a process called non-homology end-joining, a horrible term, but it basically just tries to stick the broken ends of DNA back together again. But often you have a little mistake made, and that can be sufficient to inactivate a gene, which is incredibly useful in the lab for studying gene function. It's so rapid and easy. Now, if you want to make a more precise alteration in the genome sequence, the DNA sequence, and that can be anything from a single letter up to many, many thousands of letters of code, then you have to use a different DNA repair mechanism called homology-directed repair. This requires a third component to be introduced at the same time, which we can refer to as a DNA template. So this has two parts, if you like. At each end, you have a bit of DNA that's complementary, so that's the same as the gene in which you want to target. And then in the middle, you have a sequence that you want to replace the one that's in there already with. And if you have those three components together now, the Cas9 enzyme, the guide RNA, and the DNA template, the homology-directed repair mechanism will now work, 
and it will substitute what was in your template into the gene. It is quite an incredible technology, isn't it? There's a third method which I want to tell you about, which is really exciting, which is called base editing. Now, this only allows you to change one base pair, one letter, if you like, in the code. But it works without making a double-strand cut in the DNA. It changes chemically, if you like, one letter to another. Then its partner also then has to change, otherwise you have a little loop in the DNA. And that relies on a different type of DNA repair mechanism to do that little bit. But given that about half of single gene disorders are caused, in fact, by single base pair changes, mutations in the DNA, this new method looks really promising because it doesn't come with the baggage that some of the other methods have of creating unwanted mutations. So you get just what you want. So it it could well be a much safer method, at least when you're dealing with single base mutations. Tell me how genome editing is being used in the lab and perhaps with patients? It's really exploded in basic research, the use of genome editing, in particular the CRISPR-Cas9 methodology. It's relatively easy to use, that's one reason, and relatively inexpensive to use. But it's just so powerful and so rapid. So we've had ways of altering genes in cells in culture or in model animals that we use for research like mice. We had methods to alter genes in them for many years, for decades. But they were always very inefficient, very slow. To make a mouse carrying a specific mutation in a particular gene, it really used to take well over a year to do that. We can now do it in a matter of a couple of months. So it rapidly speeds up the way that we can do research to study the role of specific genes or parts of genes during development, in my case, or for physiology or for brain function or in cancer. It's really speeded up things enormously and made it cheaper. In terms of things like the possibility of using genome editing to treat patients who already have a genetic disease or cancer or something like this, again, that's really looking incredibly exciting. We've had somatic gene therapy also for decades. Just explain what somatic gene therapy is. Somatic cells are basically any cell in the body apart from the germ cells, the germ cells being those cells that are going to give rise to sperm or eggs that would allow any genetic change to be passed on to subsequent generations. So a typical somatic cell would be a skin cell or a muscle cell or a bone cell or a brain cell. So there are a whole range of genetic diseases that can compromise the ability of particular cells to function or the body to function. Things that affect the blood, like sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia. You have diseases like cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy that affect lungs and muscles and other tissues. In many cases, these are due to single mutations, a single gene that's affected by a small mutation affecting that gene. So the genome editing methods can be used to correct gene defects or in some cases find ways around of getting another gene to become active to replace the gene that's not working. There are now probably around 20 or so clinical trials that have been launched using the genome editing methods to try and treat individuals who have genetic diseases of this sort, so single gene defects. Can you explain how it works in practice? Because I understand that the patient's stem cells are taken out and edited, and then they are reintroduced back into the patient. So it depends on the type of problem you're trying to solve. For diseases that affect the blood system, 
for example, beta thalassemia or sickle cell disease. You can indeed take out the stem cells from the bone marrow, which give rise to all the different blood cell types. You can then correct the genetic defect in the lab, ex vivo, as it's referred to. Then check what you've got. You can make sure that you've got the edit you want and no other edits in the cells, and then put them back into the patient in a way that they will take over. So we're used to clinically doing bone marrow transplants for treating people with leukemias, for example. Yes. There's a lot of promise in that. It's much better than the old methods of doing somatic gene therapy, where you simply used a vector, so usually a virus, that had been modified to carry a copy of the gene, but a, a normal functioning copy of the gene, as opposed to the defective one in the patient. You inject that into the patient, it would integrate at random in the genome. It may cause an effect on a gene in which it's integrated into, so it may cause another mutation. The level of activity of the introduced gene may not be appropriate to give benefit. But if you've actually used the genome editing methods now to correct the abnormal gene, you know it's going to be regulated correctly and that you're hopefully not affecting any other gene. Robin, you talked about ex vivo research, which is where the genome editing takes place outside the body. But there are also trials, I understand, with in vivo research, which is where the genome editing takes place inside the body of the patient. Can you tell us how that works? That's actually more challenging because you have to get the genome editing components into sufficient numbers of cells to cause benefit for the patient. And that's where the challenge comes. So you can use a number of different ways of getting the Cas9 enzyme, the guide RNAs, and if you need it, a DNA template. You can package them into viral vectors and introduce the viruses into the patient. You have to introduce a lot of virus, though. I see. Is and that the hurdle? Well, that's one potential hurdle. There are other methods for specific tissues. So for the liver, you can use little particles that you inject in the bloodstream, and they're taken up by the liver cells preferentially, and they can introduce the components into the liver cells that way. If the tissue is on the surface of the body, then again, you can use different methods to try and get it into those cells on the surface. But let's take something like muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy affects many muscles in the body, muscles in your legs and your arms, but also other muscles, your heart muscle, your diaphragm and things. So if you're going to use these methods to try and treat patients with muscular dystrophy, it's been done in mouse models and actually in a model of muscular dystrophy in dogs. It looks very promising. You've got to get enough cells corrected to have benefit. In the case of muscular dystrophy, there's some suggestion that maybe 20-30% is sufficient to actually restore muscle function. So about if a third of your cells that, can have the gene corrected, then yeah. you can recover some kind of muscle you, function. You recover good muscle function, apparently. So experiments were published a couple of years ago in the mouse. Mice are very small. It's relatively easy to get your components into many muscle cells in a small animal. So the fact that they were able to repeat this using a dog model was very promising. Still smaller than humans, adult humans. So there's still a challenge there. Can we really get enough in? You have the general problem of doing a clinical trial where you have a disease that is progressive. So if you try and treat an adult with muscular dystrophy, it's probably too late because their muscles have degenerated. You can't restore their muscles. There's nothing to recover. Nothing to recover. So you have to do a trial on children. And that always challenges the regulators because they don't like experiments being done on children first. Has it been done? 
No, as far as I know, there's no trial has started, but I know that there are a couple of groups who really want to do this. Eric Olson in Dallas in the US has been pushing to do something. All the preclinical data looks really good, but they haven't got approval to go ahead yet. Has there been any in vivo trials yet of genome editing in human patients? Nothing's quite started, but there are certainly proposals, so you should watch this space because it will happen. But certainly the easiest way of doing it is the ex vivo, because you can take cells out, put them back, it's much easier, you know what you've got. The other sort of challenges with in vivo editing is that it's harder to keep track of what's happened. Inside the body. Inside the body. So how do you know the correct edit in sufficient cells without taking out cells, biopsying the patient and saying, oh, this has worked? How do you know you don't have inappropriate edits, mistakes in the process? So you can only do that based on experience. You know that if you do this enough times with cells, maybe you can have patient-specific stem cells that you can practice on to show that it's going to work and not cause any untoward effects. But it's going to be a challenge to make sure that it works efficiently and safely. I suppose one challenge for ex vivo genome editing is that each treatment has to be tailored to each patient. Yes. You're using the patient's own stem cells, aren't you? Exactly. That's true. There's experience of that already, but it is indeed costly. A typical gene therapy treatment, there's been a couple of that have been if you like, marketed now. They are really expensive. They're How like, expensive? Well, half, you know, half a million to a million euros, for example, dollars per patient. But, of course, the companies who set these up are recovering their costs, and hopefully the costs will come way down. An individual treatment doesn't necessarily have to be hugely expensive. It often is because of the way it has to be done. And certainly when you are doing experimental medicine, it's always more expensive. But hopefully there will be ways to bring down the costs. When we look ahead in the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years, do you think we will have proper treatments for those kind of disorders? There's certainly a lot of optimism in the field that, yes, this is the way forward. It's going to work. There will be treatments. The big issue we've touched on already is the cost and can you really bring the cost down, particularly if you're talking about diseases like sickle cell disease or thalassemia, to countries where they're not as rich as we are in the West, so Africa, for example. So to make them accessible to the relevant populations is going to be a challenge. And there's people trying to think about this, how you can make them affordable treatments. So social justice is very important. I understand that genome editing is also creating excitement when it comes to drug discovery. What can you tell us about that? If you want to understand, for example, how a drug interacts with the context of particular cells and whether there are particular genes or gene pathways, pathways that processes occurring within cells that the drug interacts with or affects or can affect if you're looking for a new drug, then you can use essentially genome-wide libraries of CRISPR-Cas9 to guide RNAs with the Cas9 to effectively screen every single gene, every single pathway that's operating within a cell and the effect that the drug has on that cell in a number of different contexts. So you can look at cell proliferation, you can look at cell survival. So you can set up your assay in a particular way that you think will be informative. So you can rapidly screen the effects of a compound on properties of cells and find which genes it interacts with. So it's a much more rapid way, if you like, of screening drugs and trying to do this one by one. 
And I understand also that it's giving clues as to the genetic sources of drug resistance in things like cancer treatment. Of course, all of that too, yes. So you can more rapidly ask questions. Whenever you have a genetic question, basically, you can ask it much more rapidly using the techniques. So you can try and use it to say, well, which pathway, which genes are really critical for the development of this particular cancer. And because the methods are so relatively straightforward and easy to use and efficient, particularly because they're efficient, you can do so-called multiplexing. So you don't have to just inactivate one gene at a time. You can say, well, if I inactivate this gene, does it lead to any sort of cancerous properties? And if the answer is no, well, what if I inactivate another one? And then you can gradually build up a picture. Well, actually, this is how cancers normally are. It's more than one gene has been mutated. Multiple genes have been mutated. So you can replicate that process in the lab and find out really are these the critical pathways that lead to development of this type of cancer. Then try and find ways of counteracting that or of targeting those cells in a very specific way in your treatment. And do you think genome editing has the potential to transform cancer treatment in the future? It's not really my field, but I think it could certainly do so. Because if you know a specific gene or gene pathway is particularly relevant to a cancer, its own survival, then Yes, if you can introduce these genes to try and treat patients with genetic disease, cancer is a genetic disease, you can introduce the components to try and tackle the cancer cells themselves. And they have different properties because of the mutations they're carrying. You can perhaps find ways of killing them specifically. So it's amazing. Almost anything that is genetic in origin is amenable to interference, correction. I mean, it's going it's, to transform healthcare, isn't it? It? It, it, ha it is. Transformative is exactly the right word. It's been a revolution in biology and at many different levels. We always hear about CRISPR-Cas9. I understand that CRISPR is also being paired with other proteins or enzymes, such as I've heard Cas12. What are all these new variants doing? Well, the Cas9 itself comes from bacteria, and basically by screening through lots of different bacteria, a whole range of these DNA, or in fact RNA, cutting enzymes have been found. So they are used by bacteria naturally to defend themselves against invading pathogens. So bacteria can be infected by viruses. And so they've developed this, if you like, almost like an immune system. So if they have within them a particular nuclease, Cas9 or 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever. And they have a way of having some memory, if you like, of any previous virus that's invaded them, where a little bit of that DNA sequence from the virus has been copied into the bacterial genome in a system that allows it to be expressed or activated and link it up with another bit of RNA that's going to interact with the Cas protein, the nuclease. If the virus attacks the bacteria again, that system then cuts the DNA of the virus and kills it. So it's a defense system against invading viruses. And different bacteria have evolved many different types of system to do this. And so by mining this rich information out there in different bacteria, scientists have discovered now many different forms of these nucleases and the types of RNA that they interact with in their defense mechanisms. So I mentioned that most of these seem to target DNA, but some of them target RNA. And when a gene is active, the first thing that happens is it makes a copy of RNA from which a protein is then made. 
So okay. RNA is like an intermediate step. RNA can be an intermediate step. You have other RNAs which have other functions in the cell, but RNA is often an intermediary step between a gene and making a protein, the product of a gene. And some of these CAS enzymes will, rather than cut DNA, they cut RNA. And so these also have, of course, uses in research and potentially in other sorts of treatments and therapy. And I suppose that's because they're making edits at a different point in that protein production process. Exactly. So these will not make a permanent change in the genome of the cell or the person or animal you're working with, but they could still significantly affect the production of an abnormal protein, for example. So they could have benefits. They've been thought of, for example, in context of some diseases where you make an abnormal protein, like Huntington's disease. So could you use these to affect the production of that protein? So rather than making the genetic alteration, you alter the production of the protein, Protein. stepping in at a different moment. Robin, what do you mean when you say cancer is genetic? What I mean, sorry, it has a genetic cause because almost inevitably there will be mutations in genes involved in the development of the cancer. So some of these may have an heritable component. So if you inherit a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, then you are at risk of breast cancer. But you usually have to have another mutation that actually gives you cancer, in fact, usually multiple mutations, before you actually get the cancer developing. So genes will be mutated in cancers, and because of genes involved, it's a genetic problem. Thank you, Robin, for joining us. As usual, we'll end with a special request to our listeners. We'd like you to take part in an informal survey and answer any or all of the following questions. Which technologies would you describe as overrated or underrated and why? Which non-tech book would you recommend that gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world? And what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today? Please send your answers to those questions to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a closer look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Ruth Lewis-Cost and Fiona Simon.